chapter 6 in your Bible tonight, Romans 6. As you're uh, turning, uh, let me mention one book that kind of ties into what we dealt with last night at the end of Romans 5. We introduced uh, really the series on Romans 6 through 8 from that bridge passage at the end of chapter 5. Uh, there's a book on the table called The Liberating Life of Jesus. It's subtitled says, Finding Freedom in Christ Between the Two Streams of Law and License. In other words, we get off focus from the first and we get left. We're off focus, we get off course. On the one side of it, I remember thinking, okay, I don't feel like it. And I remember thinking, well, what do they mean, dead to sin? And I did not know. They said it, which is true, it's accurate. Uh, and I don't remember if they tried to explain it. Maybe they did. They probably did. If they did, I don't remember that part. Because uh, it just never sunk in. What does it mean, dead to sin? Or whatever it means in God. Because then, you know, as you read on, we're going to see it tonight. There's this verse that says you're to reckon, you're to count certain things to be so. But if you don't know what the that all of that becomes an attempt at wishful thinking. And so this passage is the bedrock. It's the foundation there on page three of that new relationship. It's going to deal with death. It's going to deal with life. It's going to deal with freedom found in a person. So uh, at the end of the passage last night in chapter five, uh, we saw that the law entered verse 20, that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. 
that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign to the righteous, through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, we come to chapter 6, and it's following right up on that. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Wow, if there's all this grace. And keep in mind, the first five chapters have dealt with justification by grace through faith. And so there's this conclusion that Paul anticipates some will go to. Uh, well, man, if it's that easy, and, uh, you know, justification's free by faith, hey, let's get our ticket to heaven. And since there's grace, let's go ahead and live like the devil. And that is a wrong conclusion, obviously. But you know what's fascinating? In countering that wrong conclusion, Paul does not go back and make it harder to get saved. Do you know salvation is free? It is absolutely free by faith, which is not a work. And so he doesn't go back and make it harder to get saved. He doesn't jump ahead to Romans 12, 1 and 2 and take sanctification, discipleship truth and plug it in on the moment of salvation and muddy those waters. That is not what he does what many do in our day. It is not what Paul does here in the text of the inspired scripture. He says in verse 2, God forbid, you got this wrong here. May it never be. Whoa, you're going to the wrong conclusion here. How shall we that are dead, or literally who have died to sin? See, there's your big point. Keep living any longer therein. Now, death in its practical essence is separation. Physical death, the soul separates from the body. The immaterial separates from the material. Okay, there's something that happened in this phrase here. You died to sin. There's a separation. There's a liberation that took place. You need to know that. That's what this passage is going to tell us. It's going to tell us what that means. And so how shall we who have died to sin live any longer therein? That's the big point. Now, he's going to fill in the details of what that means, and I want us to jump to the end as an appetizer. Look at verse 14. That'll be the end of our text tonight. For sin shall not have dominion over you. He doesn't say sins here. He's talking about something in the singular. We'll make that distinction as we go on. For sin shall not have dominion, rule, reign over you. For you're not under the law, but you're under grace. And whatever that means, when you're under grace, sin does not rule over you anymore. So what does that mean? Well, let's look at this foundation for this new relationship with Jesus Christ that occurs when we get saved. We're going to deal with death, life, and freedom. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you'd open the eyes of our understanding tonight to what it means to have died to indwelling sin. Give us understanding as to what got separated what gets you join Lord tonight to thrill us with the glorious facts. Facts that you say are so, so that we truly can respond accordingly. And I plead the blood of Jesus, Lord, protect us tonight from any attempt of the evil one to hinder, to distract, to deceive. Lord Jesus, in your name I exercise your authority over any powers of darkness that would attempt to that that not be allowed. Lord, plead on this tonight. Nurture faith. Convince us of what is true. We thank you in Jesus' name.
about 22 years ago. I was in a conference. We were dealing with this truth. After a particular service, I was walking down the aisle. There was a dear lady seated on the back row, and she had her arms folded. Uh, I knew her, so I kind of just paused. I could tell she was in deep contemplation. I just paused to see if she wanted to say something. And she looked up with tears in her eyes. There's hope. to the sinner that uh, you can be justified by grace through faith, but now we see that there's good news to the saints, that you can be sanctified by grace through faith. You see, Paul does not go back and make it harder to get saved. It is free by faith. He points forward that justification by uh, grace through faith opens the door for sanctification by grace through faith. In other words, the new life that you received when you got saved by faith opens the way for a new living that is also by grace through faith. There is good news to the saints. Now, we must respond rightly to that good news. And so we need to ask ourselves, am I doing that? Am I responding rightly to this message of good news to the saints? Well, what is the right response? In the text itself, it makes an appeal to all three parts of our soul. Now, we noted yesterday your soul is your mind the thinking capacity, your affections, when you allow what you understand to affect you, and then, of course, your will, the choices you make based on that. Okay, so in the text, we're going to see that the wording is aimed at each part of our soul, and combined, that whole soul response becomes the heart response. Remember, the heart is the summation, the collective response of the soul. And so we see all of that coming together. So let's deal with this triangle of the soul, we might say, the mind, the affections, and the will. Let's start with the mind. In fact, the text is going to take from verse 3 all the way down to verse 10 to deal with just what I call the first side of the triangle of the soul of man. That is your mind. So let's start with understanding glorious facts. Understanding the facts of sanctification. In other words, you got to get the facts straight. You've got to know the truth of what God says is so before you can ever reckon and then yield. Otherwise, all of that is wishful thinking. So this first response is to or in the mind. Now, the word know is going to be used three times in these uh, verses, from verse 3 down to verse 10. It's actually three different words, but all synonyms dealing with the concept, obviously, of uh, knowing. And you know when the Bible uh, says, as we're going to see it here, know ye not, in other words, you probably don't know this, but you need to. So don't you know this? You know you're not. Okay, it's going to do that a couple of different times here. But those no words are going to introduce the three facts that we must understand in the mind. So we're talking about the mind, the first side of what I call the triangle of our soul. And there uh, we must understand glorious facts. And there are three of them that we must understand. 
So, first of all, fact number one, all believers in Jesus are saints. All believers are saints. Just as all unbelievers are sinners, all believers are saints. Now here, the big truth is that identification with the death of Jesus Christ demands identification with the life of Jesus Christ. That holy life, that saintly life, the reason why God calls us saints. Now, in verse 3, he starts with the, verse, uh, the first no, and that no word uh, introduces the truth, and then there's going to be a purpose, and that's a little word uh, that uh, is in the text that means in order that or for the purpose that, and then it's going to give a reason with the little word for or because. In other words, the grammar in the text gives us the outline, truth, purpose, reason. Okay, let's start with the truth statement, verse 3. No, you're not. In other words, don't you know this? You ought to know this. That so many of us as were baptized, literally immersed into Jesus Christ, were immersed into his death. So, top of page 4, when we were placed in Christ, immersed into Christ at salvation, we were immersed into his death. Galatians 3 says that when you put your faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit baptizes you into Christ. You are immersed into, you are plunged into Jesus. And when you got placed into Jesus, you got placed into his history. So that that moment, not only did you receive a new future, you got a new past. Let that one sink in, especially when you're talking about baptism. But at any rate, uh, the fact is, you got a new history. You see, when you got placed into Jesus, the moment you were saved, the Holy Spirit baptized you into Christ. You're baptized into his history, therefore you are baptized into his death. Okay? For what purpose? Verse 4, we have the word that. And that's the little word. That simply means for the purpose that. So let's read it. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. That, there's our word, like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should, so here's potential, walked purpose in newness of life. Life, newness of life. See, that word life is very key. So bottom line is we died with Christ so that we might live with Christ. What's the reason? All right. Number three, the reason statement. It says for. So because. Here's the reason. If we have been planted together. In other words, united together through that baptism, through that being plunged into Jesus. For if we have been immersed together, uh, united together, planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also united together in the likeness of his resurrection. Now I'll explain more about this in a moment, but that is when in the likeness of his death, that's when your old man dies with Christ and then is raised with Christ, that new man, in the likeness of his resurrection. So as you see here, union with Christ in his death. So if you're placed into Jesus, you're placed into his history, therefore you're placed into his death, but he also rose again, it means you're also placed into his resurrection and therefore his life. Ian Thomas is now with the Lord. Um, I wish I would have met this man before he passed away. Just a couple of years ago he passed away from Great Britain. He's written some outstanding books. He makes a great statement here. Christ gave himself for us 
that he might give himself to us, that he might live his life through us. See, Christ gave himself for us. There's the saving death of Christ. That he might give his life to us. There's the saving life of Christ. That he might then live his life through us. There's the abundant life. Now, when he moved in, when his holy life moved in, that's when we became saints. And we're going to see, as we begin to unfold this, that there's a twofold aspect of receiving his life. His nature is implanted into us, and then his spirit moves into that part of us and indwells us. So last night at the end of the message, we talked about regeneration. That's your human spirit. So that part of you is when you are raised with Christ, if there's a new creation that takes place, and that's when God places his divine nature, his seed into you. That's the part of you that becomes holy with his divine nature so that the Holy Spirit can then move in and live at the core of our being. So as it says here, your human spirit is now regenerated with God's divine nature. The new man, so that the Holy Spirit, the new master, new leader, now indwells your spirit. That's that part of you, the regenerated spirit and the Holy Spirit. That's the holy life of God. That's why God can call us saints. So all believers are saints. Second fact, all saints are free, freed to live saintly, victoriously. You see, just as all sinners are bound to sin and headed to hell, all saints are freed from sin and headed to heaven. See, all saints are free, literally freed, liberated to live saintly, or as we say here, victoriously. Why? Identification with the death of Christ liberates, it separates us from indwelling sin as a master. Remember, Jesus came to set captives free. So let's move on in our text here to verse 6. This is one of the great verses in the whole Romans 6 chapter here. Again, we have a truth statement followed by a purpose statement followed by a reason statement. He says, knowing, this time it's the word experientially knowing this, that our old man is, literally was, has been crucified with him. Okay, so let's stop and ask. What part of us got killed? Crucifixion is about death. If you've ever studied crucifixion, whether the crucifixion of our Lord or just the crucifixion during Roman times, uh, the Appian Way and all of those things, um, pretty brutal. It's all about death. It's about death. And here it says, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. So we have to ask, what part of us got killed? Because somebody died. Now, physical death is when the soul separates from the body. The best I can tell, that has not happened for anyone in this audience. <laughs> Yet. <laughs> and don't try it tonight, okay? <laughs> so that means we're not talking about soul or body. So that means the words, old man... Under inspiration, God is choosing words to personify a part of our being. Well, 
physical death is when the soul separates from the body. That means we're not talking about the soul or the body. The old man is laboring, labeling the unregenerated human spirit. So body, soul, spirit, it is in the unsaved condition, the unregenerated condition. That part of us, the scripture calls the old man. Or for the women in the audience, the old lady. <laughs> Shouldn't have said that, but <laughs> had to throw it in. Okay, so <laughs> the old man gets crucified with Christ. So when the Galatians 2.20 says, I am crucified, Romans 6.6 6 is telling us which part of the eye, the core of us, the real you prior to salvation, the unregenerated human spirit, the old man gets crucified, gets killed with Jesus. Why? Let's go to the purpose statement in the next phrase, that. There's your little word that means, for the purpose that, the body of sin. Let me stop right there. The turf, the sphere, the turf for the activity of indwelling sin. Now, we've got to gra grab a, cold, a couple of things here or we'll misunderstand the text. Do you notice that the word sin is in the singular? Romans 1 through 5, often you'll see sins in the plural. That's not what it says here. It switches. When we come into Romans 6 through 8, the emphasis is not on sins in the plural. It's on sin in the singular. In other words, it's not talking about sins. It's talking about an entity called sin that influences us to commit sins. In Romans 7, we're going to see two times that it is described as sin which dwelleth in me. In Romans 6, 6, at the end of the verse, it talks about that we should not serve sin. So sin is being personified as a master who is served. You see, sin is not sins. It's that something, it's that, that pull that we feel inside of us that urges us to commit sins. Suppose some trigger of temptation comes up and there's that urge to blow your stack or there's that urge to indulge your flesh in some way and you feel the pull. That is indwelling sin. That's not your old man. It's indwelling sin. It's an entity that the scripture here calls sin, which dwells in us. I'm just shortening it by saying uh, indwelling sin. So the body, when it says the body of sin, that entity called sin can't commit, it can't, it can't pull off what it wants, sins, without a body. <laughs> oh, okay. So that the body of sin, the turf for the desires and activities of indwelling sin might be destroyed, which is not the idea of annihilated. It's rather the idea of put out of business. Actually, I, I've, uh, I think one of the best ways to describe it is that the body, this turf for the acti activity of sin, might be deprived of its power. When you go down the wrong road and yield to the flesh, there's a power that enslaves you in that. We feel it. We experience it, okay? It's so that that dynamic might be deprived of its power. So we're crucified, we're killed, there's a part of us, the old man, that unregenerated human spirit is somehow uh, uh, dies with Jesus so that this body for the turf, this turf for the activity of this old master of indwelling sin might be deprived of its power so that we should henceforth not serve indwelling sin. 
So in the immaterial part of us, prior to salvation, our core, the real us prior to salvation, that old man is, as it were, shackled. It's in a union. See, you can't die to something unless you're joined to it. So the wording from verse 2, died to sin, tells us that there was a union that had to be severed. And prior to salvation, in the immaterial part of us, that core, that old man was joined. It was in a union. It was in a relationship with this old master of indwelling sin. We're shackled. We're chained. We're stuck to that old master of indwelling sin that defiles everything. But you need to know. Don't you know that your old man was crucified with Jesus? so that the body, the turf for the activity, this old master of dwelling sin might be deprived of its power so that we're no longer forced to serve that old taskmaster. That's Romans 6, 6. What an amazing verse. You say, well, how, how does all this happen? I'm going to jump ahead for a second because if I don't, uh, I fear we might lose the power of what's happening here. In verse 10, it's going to tell us that he, Jesus, died unto sin once. You see, prior to salvation, our old man is shackled to this old master, and we can't get away. It defiles everything we do. I mean, we are stuck to this guy, and even the best efforts and noblest efforts of unsaved people, uh, all it is is it's, it's defiled by this old master. It shows that it's self-dependence that can only produce self-righteousness, that God calls a filthy rag that falls short of his glory everything that an unsaved person does. And, and we can't get away. We need Jesus to do this for us. We can't die to sin on our own. But verse 10 tells us, and we'll come to it in a moment, but I'm going to jump ahead to help put this together. He, Jesus, died unto sin once. Now, that tells us then there had to be a moment when Jesus came into union with sin. And, of course, that's the cross. You remember on crucifixion day that the entire globe went dark from noon to 3 o'clock in the afternoon. What a dark day. Why did that happen? Why did Jesus cry out from the cross at the end of that three hours, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You know, that's, that's a strong accusation. Those are strong words. What was Jesus saying? Friends, it is in those hours that Jesus, God the Son, but functioning as the Son of Man to represent us, was separated. See, that's death. From the Father. Because he was in an actual contact with your sin and mine. In fact, the entire human race, from the first Adam to the last human being who will ever live, and that, live, and that is why Jesus called the last Adam. He's never called the second Adam. He's called the second man. We'll see that in a moment. But he's called the last Adam. Why? Because the sins of the race went on him. And he came into contact with that whole picture of sin. That's why he agonized in the Garden of Gethsemane. I'm going to tell you something, friend. He was not running from the cross in the garden. He came to save sinners. The agony was the way of the cross. That for the first time in all eternity, this perfect, sinless, spotless Lamb of God, Jesus, 
God the Son, but functioning as the Son of Man, was separated from the Father because he was in an actual union in contact with sin. That was the agony. And friends, there on the cross, he was in contact with your sin and mine. He was in contact with the whole picture. Sins and sin. I don't have time to detail all that. But before he voluntarily gave up his spirit, he cried with a loud voice, It is finished. And according to verse 10, he died unto sin once. That is not the same as the glorious gospel to the sinners in 1 Corinthians 15, that Christ died for our sins. This is the gospel of the saints, that Christ died unto sin. Now here's the glory of it, friends. When you put your faith in Jesus, we saw it right here, you're placed into Jesus. You are baptized into Christ. And don't you know that when you're baptized into Christ, you're baptized into his death. You see, he died unto sin once. And the moment you put your faith in Jesus, you're placed into him, which means you're placed into that death. And so in the immaterial part of you where your old man is shackled and joined to this old master, the cross comes in like a knife and cuts through all those shackles and sets you free. That's what it means to be dead to sin. Your spirit got liberated from that old taskmaster. And notice verse 7, here's the reason. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Not just sins, but from indwelling sin. Which means through the separation of death, indwelling sin is no longer our master. We got liberated. Now, indwelling sin still hangs around in the soul and body levels. That's why we have trouble. But your core is not joined to him anymore. You got severed. You got set free. You got liberated. That's what dead to sin, sin means. Your spirit is no longer chained to that taskmaster. There's no more forced slavery. It's over. You died to sin. That's when it happened. Then there's a second reason given in verse 8. Now if we be dead or if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. So there's that old man dies with Christ unto indwelling sin and is raised with Christ the new man because we shall live. There's the new man with him. There's the new leader. We shall live. There's the regenerated human spirit. With him, there's the Holy Spirit. And so you see both dynamics coming together. Now, these pictures attempt, in diagram form, obviously they're limited, uh, to show us what's happening here. So you can uh, take a look at that. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it because I think it's self-explanatory. But that's what we just went over. The old man dies with Christ. And he's raised with Christ that new man. And that new man is the regenerated spirit. It's the new creation of 2 Corinthians 5.17. It is God's seed. God's sperma. 1 John 3.9. God's nature and DNA being implanted into you. Wow. And by the way, over in 1 John 3, 9, it says he, that part of you, the real you, the God's seed part of you, the God's nature part of you, it says he cannot sin. <laughs> well, obviously God's nature cannot sin. Now, we can ignore that and yeah, we can <laughs> make a, a big mess. We all know that. 
That's why three verses earlier it says in 1 John 3, he who abides, which is your picturesque term for faith, he who abides in him does not sin. Why? Because there's a part of you that cannot. The regenerated human spirit, God's seed, obviously the Holy Spirit as well, uh, cannot sin. So uh, that's why we need to grab a hold of the truth. If we don't, down we go and we ignore all that and miss out on the provision that God has given. So at the bottom of page 6 it says the old relationship with indwelling sin is forever severed. And the new relationship with the indwelling Christ is forever sealed. So all believers are saints. All saints are freed, liberated, set free to live saintly because you got severed from the sin master. You're raised with Christ, the new man, God's seed, God's nature implanted in you. And that's where the Holy Spirit moves in. And that brings you to fact number three, Christ is the victory. Just as for unbelievers, Christ is the Savior they need. For believers, Christ is the victory. And here we see that identification with the death and resurrection of Christ finalizes this victory over death and indwelling sin. Here the truth statement is simply followed by the reason. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death has no more dominion over him. All right. So Christ's resurrection freed him forever from death's dominion. Verse 10, for in that he died, and here's our great phrase, he died unto sin once. So there's your connection back to verse 2. The way we died to sin is because he died unto sin and we got placed into him. That's your identification. You're in him. That's what God says. And therefore you died unto sin. And so he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. So here Christ's death to indwelling sin for all of us was once for all. And his life and living to God is forever. So let's summarize the first side of the triangle, the mind, the facts. We're in him. That means we're free from indwelling sin's claim of death because we died in him. The wages have been paid in him. And uh, he died for our sins. He died unto sin. And uh, he's the only one that can die for our sins, but we're placed into him, and that's where our death unto sin takes place. And so we're liberated now, free to live unto God. So, fact number one, say it with me. All believers are saints. Fact number two, all saints are free to live victoriously. Or we can say saintly. Fact number three, because Christ is the victory. Now, those are the facts. Those are the glorious facts. We need to understand. We're saints. We have been freed. Why? Because we're placed into Jesus and therefore his death. And there has been a severance from that sin master. We got unshackled, unchanged, set free. And raised with Christ that new man so that the Holy Spirit moves in. Bringing the very life of Christ in us who is our victory. Now, we now move to the second side of the triangle of the soul. So you think, of course, of the triangle having three sides, so we have three parts to the soul. The wording switches from the no in these verses from verse 3 down to verse 10 to verse 11. So here we'll say it this way. This is directed to the affections where you allow what you understand to affect you. Here's another way to say it, as I have at the top of page 8, personalize the facts. In other words, you've got to be convinced of this. You must agree with the facts. You must personalize them. It says, likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead or to have died unto indwelling sin. 
but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now we're all the way down to verse 11, and yet this is the first imperative in the text. See, you've got to know, you've got to know, you've got to know the glorious facts, or this reckoning will be wishful thinking. If you've been in church, you know that there's a victory available. But if you're not convinced of what the truth is because you don't know it, but you know there's a victory, you're thinking, okay, there's a victory, and you kind of, oh, I believe, I believe, but believe what? <laughs> See, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word, the rhema, the specific word of God. If we don't know the reasoning, the foundation underneath it, then it becomes wishful thinking. That's why the knowing is so important. But once you do know, here's the imperative Reckon ye also yourselves. Now, this is unusual. Most imperatives, most commands are directed right at your will. But this one is a little bit different. It's directed to your mind, that's in the word reckon, and to your affections, because it says reckon ye also yourself. See, it's the personalizing of what you now understand in your mind. This word is translated conclude, come to the right conclusion in Romans 3.28. It is a word that is an accounting term. So, uh, when you go to your checkbook, if you just write in money that's not there, does it create it? I wish it did. <laughs> no. The checkbook means if you know facts, I have this much amount that just got put into my checkbook, then I put those parallel numbers to reflect that number that got put into my account. It's not creating money, it's accounting for what is. So let's say you have some long lost uncle who leaves you in his will and one million dollars is transferred into your checking account. Well, that's a one with a lot of zeros behind it. I should have counted them, but a lot. So let's say you come to your checkbook and you write a one and three zeros, a thousand. Well, that's not anywhere close. And if that's all you put in, you're not reckoning right and you will live far below your worth. Friends, when we got saved, the bank account of heaven got transferred. <laughs> We're in Christ. He's in us. But if we just think, well, we have victory once in a long while. You know, bless God, it's going to be great when we're in heaven, but down here we struggle along. Once in a while we have a good day. <laughs> you didn't put enough zeros. You see, and that's when we live far below our worth. Now, what's interesting about this command is the voice of the verb. Forgive me for getting technical for a second, but sometimes these things matter. It's not active. An active voice means you do it. It's either middle or passive. And in a certain sense, that's mute because we can't do this. God has to. And so obviously, the command then is allow yourself to be convinced. You can try to convince yourself, but that's wishful thinking. That leads you to faking it. But when the Holy Spirit convinces you, that's another story. See, the convincer, according to Jesus in John 16, is the Holy Spirit. So allow the Holy Spirit to convince you. That's the word reckon. Come to the right conclusion because you're convinced by the Spirit. This is so. You are a saint because you got severed from the sin master. You got joined to Jesus and he's your victory. 
And so allow the Spirit of God to convince you that in fact is so. So that you can turn right knowledge into right thinking process. Because without being convinced, it is wishful thinking. Occasionally I'll read an author who will say, well, I read the Spirit-filled life authors and, you know, I tried it and it didn't work. Now here's what that likely means. So if you can think again of the soul as a triangle, mind, affections, and will. The intellectual guys, they, they study what it says, here's the mind, and then they jump to the will without being convinced by the Spirit. That doesn't work. But God's truth works. And when you understand what God says and you're convinced by the Spirit it is so, then the faith response is the obvious natural response, and it's real. And that's when, of course, it, that is the truth of God, works. So we must heartily agree with the facts. So to personalize it, as we see here on page 8, fact 1, instead of all believers are saints, it's I am a, a, a saint. Would you say it with me? I am a saint. Are you convinced? Now, I know this may be shocking for some, either about you or the person next to you. <laughs> but if you have believed in Jesus, even if it's not matching up too well right now, the fact is, all believers are saints, which means you are. And if you ever want your practice to catch up with your provision, you've got to believe you have it. <laughs> See, you're not a saint because you live saintly. You may live saintly because you're a saint. <laughs> and so you gotta, you got to be convinced, hey, I am a saint. The real you, God's nature in you, that new man, <laughs> that new lady, uh, that part of you is righteous. It's God's nature, righteous, holy, loving, good, and so much more, even on your worst day when you forgot all about it and ignored it. Truth is, that's the real you. That's why we were talking last night. You were a sinner. You are a saint. Now, I know we can ignore all of this and we can sin. We got that. So we're not talking about sinless perfection. I don't know why anybody gets worried about sinless perfection. That's not our problem. Our problem is the other direction, the sinful imperfection. But the truth is, you're a saint. So when you leave tonight, address each other as saint so-and-so. I did that one night in one church, and that night we had... Uh, one St. Bernard and two St. Nicks. <laughs> but try it. <laughs> I remember one church, I had them do this, and this couple was coming out, an older couple, and I'm standing with the pastor at the door, you know, greeting people as they're leaving. And uh, so the husband was going to have fun with this. He said, Pastor, and he looks at his wife, meet St. Lucy. And she goes, that's the first time he's ever called me that. <laughs> Well, something got missed there, but uh, I was in one setting where I challenged everybody to call each other Saint so-and-so, and there was a break time. It was a conference setting over in Ireland, and so I, I walked up to this one man, and I said, so how is Saint Hugh? That's his name. And his countenance fell, and he was always kind of a fun-loving, joking kind of guy. His countenance fell, and he said, oh, far from it. And I thought, man, he missed everything I just preached. Now, the reason he said that is maybe his practice wasn't matching up. So we don't feel like sin. But friends, if you're saved, you are. 
And if you ever want things to get transformed, you've got to believe what God says. You've got to allow the Spirit of God to convince you. You've got to reckon. You've got to put the, the right zeros into the checking account. So fact number two, it's not just that all uh, saints are free to live victoriously. I am. You are. So let's say it. I am free to live victoriously. You see, obviously, as believers in Jesus, the Bible makes it clear we're able not to sin. We all know that we're able to sin because God does not force this. It's never automatic. But the fact is there is a provision so that based on his provision, we're able not to sin. In other words, if we yield to him as we're going to see. So if the mindset is, oh, man, I'm going to blow it, you're already headed down. But if the mindset is, wait a second, I am a child of God. I've got God's nature. See, that's why Jesus is called the second man, by the way. He started a new race, and there's no racism in it, by the way. You see, his nature's in us. This is why I can go to country after country and have a bond with people immediately that I've never met before. Because we got the same nature <laughs> put into us, that divine nature, okay? And so that's where the Holy Spirit moves in. And because of that, we can get to fact number three here. Christ is not just the victory, he's my victory. Would you say that with me? Christ is my victory. And that's why the focus has to be on him. That's where we started last night. Uh, years ago, I went with my dad to Washington, D.C. He was in a meeting for uh, things, and I was having fun. <laughs> so I went over to the Smithsonian uh, Institute, and they had an IMAX going uh, with the Blue Angels. I thought, oh, man, that'd be cool. And, of course, big screen, you know, big IMAX. And uh, I'm in there, and, and uh, oh, those fighter jets, you know, it's, it, you know it's, it's, it's amazing all that they do and how, you know, they spin out and <laughs> all the things that they do. But then occasionally they put the, uh, the uh, camera in the cockpit. And then they start doing these wild maneuvers like spiraling. Well, I have a problem with motion sickness. <laughs> and so when that camera's going like this and everything's spinning around, it triggered nausea. I mean, like real sickness. <laughs> now, the fact was, I was not spiraling around. I was sitting on a chair, you know, fastened to cement. So, that was an illusion. Now, the sickness was not an illusion. <laughs> but it was a, an experience that was real, that was a false experience based on an illusion. And in the same way, when we focus on Satan's lie that we're just dirty, rotten dirt balls, it triggers spiraling down. Now, the fact is, we're saints, but the spiraling down is a real experience because we are, it's like getting, it's like the nausea. See, in the IMAX, what I had to do was stop looking at the lie and look at the cement <laughs> and hug it. And friends, in the same way, we've got to stop looking at the lie and look at Jesus, the rock, our foundation. We're not spiraling and so we can have experiences that are real, but they're false experiences. In other words, they're based on lies. God wants us to have truth experiences. So, top of page 9, as we wrap this up, the sanctification facts. All believers are saints. All saints are free to live victoriously. Christ is the victory. So let's personalize it. I am a saint. 
I am freely victorious because Christ is my victory. That brings us to number three, the third side of the triangle of the soul, moving from mind and affections to the will, the chooser, the choices of faith. And God, in his word here, instead of using the word faith, describes it. And after this command to your mind and affection come three more imperatives directed right at your will. Stop commands and start commands. Look at verse 12. Let not indwelling sin therefore reign, rule in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Now, did you catch this? The lusts are not yours. They're indwelling sins. Let's look at the wording. <laughs> that ye should obey it, indwelling sin, and its lust, the lust thereof. Ah, you see, the real you doesn't have those lusts. The real you is God's divine nature. The real you defaults to Jesus. Remember that last night? And Satan, according to Ephesians 2, works through that old sin master and dwelling sin to try to deceive us to make us think that we're him and he's us. But he's not us and we are not him. <laughs> so stop placing yourself under the authority of indwelling sin. He's not your authority. See, indwelling sin still resides in our soul and body. He asserts his power. We feel the pull, but we're not connected to him. There's no longer forced slavery. We were set free. So if we yield to him and place ourselves under him, even though he's not our authority, it's no longer forced slavery. It's voluntary slavery. What a tragedy. So the scripture says, don't place yourself under that boss. He's not your boss. He's not your master. Sin, indwelling sin, is in you. When there's a trigger of temptation, he says, go for it. We feel the pull, but that's not us. And remember, temptation itself is not sin. And it wouldn't even be temptation without the pull. So recognize you got severed from that pull. That is not you. So don't yield to it. Then it goes on to say, neither yield, which is translated present in chapter 12, your members, your body parts, as instruments of unrighteousness unto indwelling sin. So stop placing yourself under his authority and therefore stop presenting your bodily members to indwelling sin to be used as accomplices to sin. Stop giving the sin master a chance to express sins. Stop putting your eyes into his hands to be used for wrong gazing. Stop putting your tongue into his hands, as it were, to be speaking evil and griping and complaining and backbiting and, and uh, campaigning uh, for your agenda and criticism. Look, stop putting your, your hands, your feet, in other words, the body parts, into this sin master to be used for evil. You're not connected to him. You don't have to do that anymore. And then it switches it to positive, but... Yield yourselves to God, unto God, as those that are alive from the dead. Wrapping up all that it just said in Romans chapter 6, those that are alive. You got severed from the sin master, raised with Christ the new man. The Holy Spirit moved in. Okay, yield yourselves now unto God as those that are alive from the dead. And your members, body parts, as instruments of righteousness unto God. So start placing yourself under the right authority, the indwelling Christ. And putting your bodily members, your body parts, eyes, tongue, ears, hands, feet, into the hands of the real leader, Jesus. And friends, when that happens, you experience his victory. 
So, we see the facts of the mind, personalized in the affections, and so underneath the triangle, it's taking Jesus. I depend on Christ. I take Jesus. I choose Jesus, however you want to word that, to live his saintly life through me. Just as with power steering, it waits for you to set the direction, then the power kicks in. God doesn't force us. We're not robots. We can make the choice to yield to the old master who's not our master or to the new leader. And I use the word leader instead of master because he doesn't force. But once we do yield to him, once we take his leadership, then the power, as it were, the power steering kicks in. And when that happens, we come to verse 14 where we started. For sin, that old sin master, shall not have dominion over you. Why? Because you've yielded to the right master. And when that's the case, you're not under the law. You're under grace. Now, what does that mean? Not under the law, I can do what I want? No. <laughs> not under. The key word there is under. You can only be under one leader at a time. And so if you're focused on law living, then you're under law, but there's no power. And that's why we go down, as we'll see in two nights. But when you're focused on the right leader, Jesus, where there's power, then he gives you that power. He enables you by his spirit. There's grace. See, when you yield to the right master, you're not under the wrong master. You're under grace. You're under the right master. That's the simplicity of it. Do you realize that God wants you to master every situation you find yourself in? You, yes, you, yet not you, but Christ is That's when the righteous reign. You present your all to Jesus, the indwelling Christ, then indwelling sin cannot dominate because you're not under him. And while you're yielded to Christ, therefore you're not under the law. You're under grace. You're accessing him. Years ago, uh, when my son was, I don't know, maybe... Uh, four or five. Uh, we lived in a fifth wheel at the time. And uh, one end of the trailer was a, a master bedroom. The other end was his bedroom. And so it's not very far apart. You're in an RV, but, you know, there's a little bit of distance there. And he went through this series of days, maybe weeks, where he started crying out of fear uh, at nighttime. Uh, he had already made a profession of faith and trusting the Lord. And so uh, I wasn't thinking Romans 6. I'm not thinking any of this. And, you know, you're talking to this four or five-year-old. But I remember went to him one night. He was crying. I said, now, John, who lives in you? And he said, Jesus. Okay, there's the first side of the triangle. He understood the right fact. I said, okay, is Jesus with you? And he said, yes. There's the second side of the triangle. He personalized it. He was convinced. And then I would ask, Will you trust him to obey? And most of the time, <laughs> he said yes. And every time he said yes, I could turn around and walk out of there. The crying would immediately stop, and he'd go to sleep. You know what that is? That's the gospel to little saints. It's accessing Jesus. That's what this is. Death with Christ, life with Christ, freedom in Christ. That is the foundation of the gospel to the saints. Now tomorrow night we'll pick it up where the text picks it up because the end of Romans 6, and you might want to read that tomorrow, gives us an illustration 
dealing with who's the leader. And then the beginning of Romans 7, down to verse 6, gives us another illustration about who's the power source. And so we'll talk about that tomorrow night. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the time that we've had tonight around your word. Now I pray.